Good morning to all of you. It's great to see you here this morning. Our message this morning is going to be found in the book of Acts chapter 15. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Acts 15, we're going to begin in verse 1. So Acts 15, we're going to be in Acts 15. But before we start, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider all that you've done in order to save mankind, we are grateful to you for that grace that you extend to us, that grace that you've made known from beginning, and you will continue to make it known to the end. Father, the fact that you will save whom you will save and you will call them by your name is such a tremendous concept, such a comforting concept an encouraging concept. And Lord, it's because of that we can be here. It's because of that we can offer up worship to you. And as we look at how you have confirmed that salvation is to come to the Gentiles, that it is by grace through faith, we pray that, Lord, you would help us just to continue to marvel at all that you've done in salvation. Help us just to continue to grow in our love for you, and we pray, Lord, that as we study your word, you would be magnified in our hearts, that your name would continue to be glorified, and it is all for your glory and your honor, we pray. Amen. Every year during election season, we see an uptick in political interest in people who may generally not be interested in politics at all. More often than not, the political interest is due to the election results giving us new leaders. And less often, but certainly not less important, the interest is also due to the effect that new legislation will have upon our lives. For example, when what was commonly known as the soda tax was passed here in San Francisco, many of us were displeased with the idea that an additional tax would be placed on all sugary drinks. Now, why were many of us upset? It's because we understood that though the tax was levied upon those who sold sugary drinks, they would pass that cost off onto us. The grocers would pass that cost onto us. And so, upon the passing of that legislation, many San Franciscans, we ran out to the stores to purchase sodas and juices before the tax could be levied. But what some of us didn't necessarily understand is that if legislation passes, even if implementation was baked into the legislation itself, it would still take some time for that tax to be put into place. It would take some time for the government to figure out how that tax would be accounted for, how it would be collected, how enforcement would be done, and so on and so forth. And the fact that implementation can take a while is apparent in the church as well. Whenever we make decisions in the church, particularly the decisions that require teaching in order to be accepted, implementation can happen quickly in some ministries as some people strive to be on the same page with the church as soon as possible, but acceptance can be slower in other parts of the church, in other ministries with people who are a little bit more hesitant about the change. And that's something that's not just true of the church today, it's even true of the church from its very beginning as well. Last week in our study of the book of Acts, we saw how God confirmed to Peter that his salvation plan did not just offer salvation to the Jews, but it offered the forgiveness of sins to the Gentiles as well. While it was clear to Peter and the six believers who accompanied him to Caesarea that God had saved the Gentiles in the same way that he had saved them, What we see today in Acts 15 is that 
and approximately 10 years later, is that the church still did not fully understand what it meant to bring in the Gentiles. And despite this lack of understanding, despite the struggle of the church to understand all that God was doing in salvation, God was still providentially working to ensure that his will was done by the church. So this morning, we're going to look at three evidences of God's providence in Gentile salvation that encourage us to be a part of his saving mission. Three evidences of God's providence in Gentile salvation that encourage us to be a part of his saving mission. The first evidence of God's providence in Gentile salvation that encourages us to be a part of his saving mission is seen in that God saved the Gentiles. God saved the Gentiles. As we breeze through the highlights of the book of Acts, we jump from Acts 10 to Acts 15. In this time, Paul has left his hometown of Tarsus, and he's gone on his first missionary journey. Prior to Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were last seen in the city of Syrian Antioch where they were reporting all the things that God had done with them and how God had opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles. And this is where we meet them this morning in Syrian Antioch. Verse 1 to 2. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. If you look at a Bible map, you'll see that Judea is technically geographically south of Syrian Antioch. It is, however, higher in elevation than Antioch. Hence, Luke says that some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Now, the content of their teaching to this congregation of Jew and Gentile believers is troubling because they tell the church that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is potentially a huge problem. For a long time, many of these believers, they fellowship together without issue. They believe that They all had a common bond in Christ, that they were together as a church witnesses of God's saving work to the world. But now, some of the believers that were in the church are being told by these men from Judea that they cannot be saved unless they are circumcised according to the requirements described in Moses' writings. Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas were still there with the church, and they object immediately to what these men from Judea say. Luke tells us that there's great dissension and debate between Paul and Barnabas and these men from Judea. See, Paul and Barnabas, they understood the gospel. They understood that people are saved on the basis of grace that God gives them to have faith so that they might receive that grace. Salvation is not a result of people first converting to Judaism so that they can receive the grace of God. If that was the case, all of us would have our salvation invalidated because this is such a significant issue and there was no resolution. The church determines that it would be good for Paul, Barnabas, and these men from Judea to go up to the apostles in Jerusalem and and to talk to them and the elders in order to inquire what the scriptures say regarding Gentiles and how people are saved. As Paul and Barnabas are making their way up to Jerusalem, they're going 
through some towns, visiting some of the believers in Phoenicia and Samaria, regions within Israel that had a higher population of Hellenistic Jews and Gentiles, and they were describing what God has done in saving the Gentiles. And since Gentile salvation was not a big deal to them because they were culturally Greek, the believers, they rejoiced at Paul and Barnabas' report, knowing that this has been something that has been understood for years, that the Gentiles were welcomed into the church as family, and that's been a given for years. And so when Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Jerusalem, it's interesting to note, verse 4, that they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And the church leadership is not the only group that's interested in this issue. The entire church wanted to know what, God, what God's word had to say about salvation. How is it that we're saved? Right? Is, do we have to follow the law? Do we have to become Jews? Or are we accepted on the basis of our faith alone? What is it? And so upon hearing the report from Paul and Barnabas, some Pharisees who had been saved, so note that these are Pharisees who are believers. They did believe in Jesus Christ. They stood up and they agree with the men from Judea and they say, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so these Pharisees who are saved, according to their understanding of the scriptures, they say that the issue goes beyond just the mere fact of circumcision, but no, you also have to obey the law too. So the Pharisees added an extra layer to this. And so basically what they're saying is, if you are genuinely saved... You have to be a Jew in order for your faith in Christ to mean anything. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Now, on this side of the book of Acts, you would think that this issue would be solved immediately. You would think that there should have been no extended argument whatsoever because the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But... This was still relatively unfamiliar territory for the church. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, The apostles and elders, they came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up. The early church had a lot of trouble trying to understand the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. They had a lot of trouble trying to figure out how salvation actually happened. Did you have to become a Jew, or could you just be saved as you are? Right? And the fact that there is debate shows that they struggled with this, that they were trying to figure out what God intended for them to know. And so the apostles and the elders, the most spiritual people in the church, they got together, and they couldn't, they couldn't agree. They were still fighting amongst themselves. And so... It's at that time that Peter, he stands up and says in verse 7, he says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. In a sense, Peter is saying, Brothers, we have had this discussion before. You know from 10 years ago that God chose to save the Gentiles from my preaching. We've talked about this in Acts 11 and you rejoiced. Why is this coming up again? And so he continues, verse 11. He says, sorry, verse 8. He says, And God, 
who knows the heart, testify to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So how do we know that God truly saved these Gentiles as they were hearing the word and, and believing? It's because God knows the heart. God knows the heart of all men. He can see beyond our outward profession of faith. You can say that you're a believer. You can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. I've prayed the prayer. I'm good. But God knows the heart. He can see beyond that. He knows whether you are genuinely saved or not. He's not fooled by our outward profession. He knows who has truly believed in him, and he evidences that in Acts 10 when he gives Cornelius and Cornelius' friends and family the Holy Spirit when they believed. And so you see, if God cannot be fooled, and he gave his Holy Spirit to those who had believed at the moment of their salvation, then why is it necessary to follow the law too? The terms have been met already. The forgiveness of sins has already been given so why do we have to go impose the law on those who have been saved? And he even points out the fact that you know, the same way that God evidenced the salvation of the apostles in Acts 2 is the same way that he evidences the salvation of the Gentiles in Acts 10 through the gift giving of the Holy Spirit. Right? And that salvation was given to them by grace. And so if that salvation that was offered by grace received by faith, is the same thing that happened in Acts 2. They're just like us. They're co-inheritors of the promise. And so Peter, he looks at this argument from the Pharisees, and he says, don't fight against God. Don't put him to the test. If he's already proved that that Gentile salvation is approved by him, don't challenge it. Don't challenge it. And besides, we've never been able to follow the law. We've never been able to keep it. Our fathers failed, and we've failed. And if we know that we're not saved in this way, why are you making them follow the law? And so the people, they're listening to Peter, and they recognize the validity of his argument. So that's why it says in verse 12, all the people kept silent. And they were listening to Paul, or sorry, Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. As we look at this, what are we supposed to pull away? What are we supposed to pull away from this evidence that God saved the Gentiles? How does this encourage us to be a part of God's mission? Well, consider it this way. What greater assurance do you need that you belong to God and to his family than the fact that God himself was the one who saved you? That God himself was the one who brought you into his family. We all had a problem. We were rightfully the objects of God's divine wrath because of our sin against him. Right? We're in danger not from Satan, we're in danger from God himself, right? God himself would right, can rightfully judge us for our sins. He can rightfully sentence us to an eternity in hell. 
And yet, because of his kindness, he himself saves us from his own wrath by sending us Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, raising him up from the dead three days later so that when we believe, we might be forgiven of our sins. God did that. He himself did that. So if you've believed upon Christ and turned away from your sins, you can have absolute confidence and courage that you're saved because God did it. You didn't do anything. God did it. You know, when Peter went to Cornelius' house, he did not go on his own initiative. God sent him there. Peter was not out of line in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles who were there because God told him to do it. Peter was not responsible for giving the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. God gave them his Holy Spirit while Peter was still preaching. God was and is behind every single person who believes, graciously granting them the faith to receive the grace that he has given. God is responsible for that. And so if we've believed in Christ and received the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion, we have no reason to doubt our salvation at all. God has saved us, and he's made us one with Christ. And if that is true, if that is true, then we must be aligned with him in his purposes, aligned with him in his mission. And for that reason, we can have confidence. We can be encouraged to be a witness of God's saving grace to the world found only in his son, Jesus Christ. God himself saved us for a purpose. Let's identify that purpose and wholeheartedly work towards that. That leads us now to our second evidence of God's providence in Gentile salvation that encourages us to be a part of the saving mission, which is God affirms Gentile salvation. God affirms Gentile salvation. Verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So after Paul and Barnabas stopped sharing what God has been doing through them, James, he answers and he speaks to the rest of the church. And some of you have probably heard or learned through various sources that Peter was the head of the church. That's not what we see here in Acts 15. In fact, in Acts 12, 17, Peter recognizes that James is the leader. James is the one who oversees the church because when he gets delivered from prison... And he goes to see the brethren. He tells them, go tell James and the rest of the church what God has done in delivering me from jail. And additionally, if Peter was the head of the church, if he is the, the leader, if he's the one who moves the church wherever God tells him to, then his testimony would have been enough. Right? Shouldn't his testimony have been enough? Argument should have been over. Once Peter said, God did this, stop fighting, the rest of the church should have said, oh, okay. Sure, we're going to listen to you because you're the head of the church. They didn't. James gets up. James provides the final judgment. And so James, he calls for the attention of the church, and he says that Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That should stand out to you because up until this point, we've never met a person named Simeon. As you read through the book of Acts, up until this point, You've never seen the name Simeon. So who is this? Right? Who is this? It's Peter. 
It's Peter. Now, how do we know this? Well, the only person whose words match up with what James just said is Peter. And also take note of this. Peter's other name is Simon, right? Simon. Simeon is the most Jewish form of, of Simon. It's the most Jewish form, the most traditional form of the name Simon. So why does James refer to Peter as Simeon when everyone present, when everyone in the room knows that his name is Peter or Simon? Why, why does he call him Simeon? It's because James knows that what he's about to say to the church might be a little harder to swallow, maybe a little harder to accept. And so he uses the most Hebrew form of Peter's name in order to show that he is not a traitor. He is not betraying the Jewish people. He is not betraying his Jewish roots or culture. He is trying instead to be consistent with what God has revealed and said through his word. And so when James says that God has been taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He's confirming that the Gentiles were saved and welcomed into the people of God back in Acts 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 8 to 9, Moses writes, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. Called by the name of the Lord. If God's people, if Israel are, if they are identified or um, if they're known, called by the name of the Lord. And James also uses that language here when he says that God is taking for himself a people for his name. You see the similarity? James is using that similar language to show that what God has done in the past for Israel by making them a people who are called by his name, he's doing the exact same thing for the Gentiles now in the present. He's taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name, a people who are called by his name. So in order to provide, or sorry, in order to prove that this is not just something that he made up, in order to agree with Peter, James tells the church that the idea that God would save Gentiles, would take from Gentiles a people for his name, he's, done the, he's proved this before. He's shown this before. It's in agreement with what the prophets have said previously. Notice, James does not say that the prophets are fulfilled. He says that multiple prophets have had similar messages that refer to Gentile salvation. And so their message, their messages agree with what he just said. And so he quotes from Amos 9, 11 to 12 as the primary evidence that the prophets also speak about Gentile salvation. But when you look at Amos 9, when you compare Acts to Amos 9, you'll see that it's not necessarily a word-for-word quotation. It's not a one-to-one quotation. And we don't have time necessarily to track down all the different texts that James integrates into Amos, into his quotation of Amos to prove the fact that multiple prophets agree with this idea that the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles. But we're going to look at what James says. Verse 16, it says, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles 
who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. The church knows from Peter's sermon in Acts 2 that they are in the latter days, that time period which signals that the end is in view. They are reminded of this truth through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So after the period of the latter days begins, God will restore the house of David through the earthly reign of Jesus. And we understand that we're not there yet. Right? We're, we're not there yet. God has not established his earthly kingdom reign yet. But if we're not at the beginning and we're not at the end, where are we? We're right in the middle. We're right in the middle. And so the beginning of this restoration of the Davidic kingdom occurs when Jesus dies on the cross and then rises from the dead three days later. But why? Why does God restore the Davidic house? It's not just because he promised David that there will always be a king on the throne. That's true. But it's not just that. It's also so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, particularly all the Gentiles who are called by his name. And so what we see is that the return of the Davidic king is important. Because it is through him that all of God's promises can be fulfilled. Not only will all of believing Israel be saved, but also all of the believing Gentiles will be saved through him. So all of this, all of this comes from the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. From long ago. From the very beginning, as early as Genesis 12, God has been hinting towards the salvation of all of mankind, of all the nations, not just Israel. God proves now through the church that everything has gone according to plan. I'm going to save my people, but I'm going to save some of the people in the nations as well. And since everything goes according to plan... James says in verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Based off of the apostles and elders' study, James delivers their findings. And they determine that those who are, those Gentiles who are believing in God should be left alone. That they're fine. That they are genuinely saved. That their salvation is valid. But they should also observe some restrictions. Now the four things that James asked for the Gentiles to abstain from, uh, to avoid, are things contaminated by idols from fornication, from eating what is strangled, and from eating things with the blood still in them. Now, though the Gentiles are free from the law, James and the church, they ask the believing Gentiles to be sensitive to their Jewish brothers and to unbelieving Jews whom they may be trying to witness to. And since, as James notes in verse 21, Moses' writings are still read in the synagogues every Sabbath, many of the Jews would be sensitive to these particular things that James highlights. So to care for them, in order to love on them, the Gentiles ought to refrain from these four things. 
Now, we'll go more into why the Gentiles are asked to refrain from these things in a little bit. But for now, what we want to pay attention to is the fact that though the Gentiles do not have to consider, uh, do not have to be circumcised or obey the law in order to be saved, there still is an aspect of restriction that they must observe. And that's not to say that we as Gentiles are obligated to obey the law in order to be considered more holy. Uh, But it does remind us that just because we have freedom in Christ before God uh, from keeping the law, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're free to do whatever we want either. We have the freedom to defer, but we'll look at that again more later. Now, as we examined how James, the apostles, and the elders resolved this massive theological question of whether Gentiles are saved by faith alone, we observe that the church leaders did not just rely upon the testimony of their fellow leaders. They could have easily done that, but they didn't. Right? They did not just rely on the visible evidence before them either. They deferred to the Scriptures. They deferred to the Scriptures. And when they deferred to the Scriptures, they saw that God affirms Gentile salvation. He affirms that salvation is through faith. It's through grace through faith. And so the validity of our salvation is not dependent upon shaky evidence. It's not dependent upon someone's personal experience. It is entirely dependent upon the consistent word of God that God gave us so we might know his purposes. From the very beginning, God has been laying the groundwork for salvation to cover his people and to extend to the nations. And God, he gives his church leaders the scriptural understanding to search the scriptures and see how all of the Old Testament, though it did have portions that talked about the judgment of Israel's enemies, was never about the wholesale destruction of people who have been created by God. It's never been about wiping out all of Israel's enemies. We know that from the book of Jonah. Jonah's mad because God offered salvation to the Ninevites. And God asked him, well, do you have a right to be mad? And Jonah's like, yeah, of course I have a right to be mad. They're your enemies. Or that's why I didn't want to go in the first place. Didn't I tell you that this is why I didn't want to go? I didn't want to go to the Ninevites because I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. I knew you would forgive them if they repented. That was Jonah's attitude. But God says, do I not have a right to love these people? Do I, have, do I not have a right to care for these people that I made? They're mine too. I have a right to care for them. I have a right to decide to save them. So we've seen for, in the entire Old Testament that God cares, even then, for Gentiles. As a Bible-believing church, the example of the church leaders is a great reminder and a challenge to us. If we are going to honor God's word, if we're going to be a church body that desires to be doers of the word, not just hearers, if we want to be a church that takes a part in God's mission, we need to know what God's word says. But not only that, we need to make sure that we understand how the scriptures apply to our lives as well. We need to actually live those principles. What you know has to drive your actions. It has to drive the way that you live your life. Otherwise, what you know is worthless. What you know is worthless. 
All the books that you've read, all the sermons and podcasts that you've listened to, they're completely worthless. You've wasted your time if everything you learned stays up here. If it stays up here and it doesn't go into your heart and it doesn't drive the way that you live your life, it's all worthless. It's worthless. We have to live out what God's word says. He didn't give it to us so that we could just look at it and say, oh, that's nice. I'm going to go back and do my own thing. And that's not why he gave it to us. He gave it to us so that we could see how we are to live our lives in a way that honors him, that glorifies him, because it's not about us. It's always been about God. And so if we are going to be his people, aligned with his purposes, with his mission, we have to live this out. This isn't just a bunch of rules. This is God's word. This is how we know who he is, how we know what he wants us to do, how we know that salvation has to go out. We have to know this and live it out. And the church understood that. The Jerusalem church understood that, which is why they didn't just listen to James's judgment, go home and kept on living life status quo. They responded. They believed God's word and they welcomed the Gentiles in. But they also knew that they needed to present these findings to the rest of the church, which leads us to our third evidence of God's providence in Gentile salvation that encourages us to take a part of God's mission, which is God's will is obeyed. God's will is obeyed. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So knowing that the rest of the church, not just the church in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church around the world needed to know the result of the council at Jerusalem, the apostles, the elders, the entire church, they knew that they needed to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. Right? The question originated in Antioch. And so the answer needed to be, needed to be given to Antioch. But the church didn't just send... Paul and Barnabas back to, to Antioch on their own with those findings. They sent two men with them, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both of whom are described as leading men among the brethren. Now that should get you to pause and wonder why the entire church, right, not just the apostles and, and the elders, but the entire church thought it was a good idea, thought it was necessary to send two additional men, two leading men with Paul and Barnabas back to the church in Antioch. Right, Paul and Barnabas, they already have a good reputation. They're church leaders. They're missionaries. Right, they know what the Word of God says. So why do we need two extra guys to go with them? Well, since the dispute over Gentile salvation occurred between Paul and Barnabas and the men from Judea, sending trustworthy men from the church was important for transparency and to avoid any objections that people might have, saying, why should we believe you, Paul and Barnabas? This was the exact answer that you gave us when you were arguing with the men from Judea in the first place. So how do we know that you actually went to Jerusalem? Right? How do we know that you didn't just stay home, hide yourself, and then come back to us and say, oh, the church in Jerusalem told us that this is how you're saved? How do we know that? How do we know that you're not lying? Well, 
if you send reputable church leaders from Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas and the men from Judea back up to the church, it ensures the truth is told. It ensures that everything is above board. And so what we see, uh, what Luke provides us here is the actual words in the letter sent up to Antioch in verse 23. The letter reads, The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Notice that the church leadership refers to the church members in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, who are Gentiles, as brethren. They call them brethren. From the outset, the church in Jerusalem makes it clear that they recognize that the Gentile believers in these congregations are fellow believers. There's no more uncertainty regarding their salvation status. They are co-heirs with Christ. They are believers. They're fellow believers. And the Jerusalem church, they recognized that what was taught to the Antioch church from these unauthorized teachers upset or disturbed their faith. And so, becoming, having become of one mind, they wanted to send beloved church members back to the church in Antioch in order to correct what was wrongly taught. Now, when the church says they became of one mind regarding this issue, it shows that there was real unity in the church as they came together to study God's word regarding how people were saved. And so where there was once great disunity, there's now unity around and because of God's word. They all agreed from their study of scripture that salvation comes by grace through faith, not by conversion to Judaism. And there was no one among the leadership that was in silent disagreement. They all became of one mind. There were no leaders who outwardly said, yeah, I'm with that, I'm for that. But then in private, they said, no, I don't agree with what they said. I don't know what's going on with them. I just said yes to that, that we could just go home. There was none of that. They became of one mind because of their commitment to the scriptures. Every single one. No one was backstabbing. No one was talking behind the back of others. All of them in agreement because of the scriptures. By the way, this is another reason why any decision that the church makes, that we as the church makes, that any ministry makes, this is, this is why these decisions Though they do need to be balanced with wisdom, they need to come from a biblical foundation. They need to come from the scriptures. If your decisions are based on the scriptures and the wisdom that comes from the scriptures, then you provide for yourself and for your ministry guardrails. If we want to make sure that we are doing God's work, God's way, 
then the very way that we do ministry, the way that we think about ministry, the way that we develop ministry, all of that needs to be couched in the scriptures. It needs to come from the scriptures. Because otherwise, we are in danger of doing ministry our way. Even though we say outwardly that we're doing it God's way. Every single little thing that we do, we need to come to the conclusion that it's from the scriptures. We need to develop that from the scriptures. If someone asks you, why do you do the things that you do? Hopefully, Lord willing, you can give them book, chapter, verse to at least the philosophy of why you came up with this decision. That's why we want to that's that's why we want to couch everything in the scriptures. That's why when we talk about having a philosophy of ministry, it needs to stem from the scriptures. Because we want to do God's work God's way, God's ministry God's way. That's what the apostles and the elders did. Right? They looked at the scriptures, they studied the scriptures, and they realized we have to do it this other way. We have to honor God in what his word has clearly revealed, so we're going to do ministry this way. And so as the Gentile believers, they rejoice in response to the news that salvation truly is by faith and not by first converting to Judaism. They're also told by the church that the Holy Spirit and the church leadership were giving Gentile believers four restrictions in their daily conduct. Now, they were to abstain from things sacrificed to idols. Why is that? Because Jewish sensibilities would have been extremely high towards things associated with idols it would be a huge stumbling block to a Jewish believer or an unbelieving Jew if a Christian ate meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul does tell us later that he understands that meat sacrificed to idols is nothing because the idols are nothing. But he also says that in love for those who are sensitive to idolatry, he was willing not to eat meat so that he wouldn't cause them to sin, so he wouldn't cause them to doubt. Gentile believers were also to stay away from fornication. Now, while that certainly means that Gentile believers are not supposed to have inappropriate sexual relationships, it also was a reminder to them not to go even remotely close to the temples where, the gen- where, where these Greek gods were worshipped through temple prostitutes. So staying away from false gods meant that even associating with people near a temple known for sexual immorality could have a damaging effect on someone's testimony. So they're told, stay away from fornication. Now Gentile believers were also to stay away from foods that were strangled before cooking or that, uh, or that still had blood in them. And this command was given with sensitivity to Jewish dietary laws. It doesn't mean that Gentiles were seen as more holy because they obeyed this or that they could never eat meat that was rare or medium rare. They just had to lay down their rights to do so if they were having a meal fellowship with a Jewish believer or an unbelieving Jew. No unnecessary offense was needed for the sake of the gospel. Right, the gospel is already offensive enough because it tells you that there's something wrong with you. Right? It tells you that you're a sinner in need of grace, in need of saving. What the church recognizes is that that's offensive enough. We don't need to unnecessarily keep on offending people to tell them that we're better than them because right? we're not. 
So in order to win people over, you conduct yourself in a way that respects them, that honors them. If the Gentile believers observed these four things, they would do well in their testimony to the Jewish community, believing or not. And this brings up a helpful application point for us as Christians, too. Our Christian freedoms, our Christian liberties do not necessarily mean that we have the right to do whatever we want. It does not mean that the people around us who are sensitive to gray areas just need to stop judging us and let us live our lives. It means that those of us who understand our biblical rights, our biblical freedoms, it means that we have the right to lay down our rights to humbly care for our brothers and sisters whose consciences are bothered by what we may feel we're free to do before the Lord. For example, if we have a brother or sister among us who has strong convictions that we should honor the Lord in our entertainment choices because Philippians 4.8 tells us that we, that we are in our minds to dwell on things that are good and pure, then we must be sensitive, sensitive to them even if we don't agree with the application of these principles. During my first year at the master's college, my junior year of college, one of the freshman brothers came up to me and he asked me if it was okay that some of our fellow brothers were watching a movie in their own room, by the way, that was rated higher than G. They were wondering, and he was wondering whether that was honoring to God because he was raised in a home where his parents taught him that it's not okay to watch a movie rated higher than G. Now, some of you might be judging his parents or you're laughing at him, uh, or perhaps some of you are very proud of his parents, like, yeah, preach it. But ultimately, that's not the issue. Ultimately, whether you can watch a movie rated higher than than G is not the issue at all. How are we to lovingly care for someone whose conviction based off of the scriptures, does not allow for them to do something that we have no problem doing, such as watching a movie above G. There there is some level of teaching and explaining that has to be done, but ultimately, until they come to that conviction themselves, sensitivity and deference needs to be shown. And this this, this is similar to what Paul was saying about meat. If watching movies higher than G is a stumbling block towards a brother or sister, then we need to make sure that we lay down our rights to do so for the sake of our brother or sister when they're around. It doesn't mean that you can't do it on your own in the privacy of your own home or whatever, but it means that you lay down your right to do whatever you want when that person's around because you don't want to be a stumbling block to them. That's how we lovingly show care to them. You can move away from that example. And use that, for, use that principle for any gray area. No matter what it is that you're doing that you believe that you are okay doing before the Lord, if someone has a problem with that, don't just look at them and say, well, that's your preference. Suck it up and deal with it. That's not how we deal. That's not how we care for them, right? We, we, we have in our Christian liberties the right to lay down our rights so that we are not a stumbling block to them. That's how we love them. That's how we care for them. Now, returning to the congregation at Antioch, they understood that. They understood what was being asked of them by the church in Jerusalem. And as they read the letter, it says in verse 31 that they rejoiced. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. They didn't object. They didn't complain. 
because of the restrictions that were given to them. Because they understood that what was more important than them having the right to do whatever they wanted to do was their unity as the church. Why was that more important than their individual rights? Because they understood that as a congregation of Jew and Gentile together, unified together in Christ, they were unique to the world. Nowhere else in the world did Greek and Gentile ever get together for one purpose. They were unique. They were a unique organization, a unique institution that visibly and tangibly demonstrated the power of the gospel to save both Jew and Gentile by faith. And it broke down racial barriers between the two so that you could have one new humanity in Christ. And because of their humility, because they understood that church was not about them, but it was all about Jesus Christ, they were willing to lay down their rights. They were encouraged. They understood that living out the faith was not about shaping ministry after their own preferences or making sure that their voices were heard in every manner, even if they're not a part of the ministry. It was all about modeling Christ for one another to see. That's what we're here for. That's what this church in its ministries is intent on doing. That's what we're intent on doing. We want in everything in all of our ministries, in all of our interactions, to model Christ to our fellow believers and to unbelievers as well. We want to model Christ in everything, in everything. And in doing so, we encourage one another and we challenge one another. Be more like Jesus. Be more like Jesus in every aspect of your life. And do you love him? Then be like him. And that's what we're modeling. That's what we're challenging each other to do. And so because the church recognized that the Christian life is all about Jesus, it's all about Christ, not about us, we are told that Judas and Silas also being prophets, in, in, in this case, not prophets who tell you what's going to happen in the future, but prophets who exhort and encourage. Right? They took this opportunity to continue to encourage and exhort the brethren with the truth. And after a while, they were sent back to Jerusalem. Now, verse 34 is kind of curious because uh, verse 34, it says, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But for those of you who have the NASB, you have it in brackets. And for those of you in ESV, it's not even there. So why is verse 34 in brackets or missing from your text? Well, it's because some of the earlier manuscripts, some of the earlier um, documents did not have this verse in it. It could be that verse 34 was inserted by some copyists in order to account for the fact that even though uh, Silas, and Bar- sorry, Silas and Judas were sent out, in verse 40, Silas is back and Paul chose him to go on the missionary journey. It, it could be that, or it could be that perhaps the church sent Silas and Judas out and then Judas, I mean, and then Silas went out a couple miles and realized, no, I need to be back at the church. I need to continue to teach. I need to continue to help. Or it could be that. Either way, it doesn't really affect our, our understanding of the text. Um, so somehow, Silas got back to Antioch, and he was able to go with Paul on that missionary journey. But that's why that 
versus either not there or in brackets for you. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they understood that it was important to continue to teach the church the word. And so it says in verse 35 that they stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. The initial answer from Jerusalem council was helpful for the growth of the church, but they needed to be instructed more in the word, which is why Paul and Barnabas, they stay to make sure that the church understands what God's word says and how it applies to their lives. The response of the Jerusalem church and the faithful actions to report the results to the church in Antioch demonstrates God's providence in assuring that the church understood his salvation plan. As Gentiles who are a part of the church today, because of the faithful actions of the believers who went before us, we can have confidence and we can be encouraged to take a part of God's mission because God has proved through these actions that our salvation and inclusion in his family was always a part of his plan. And though we may not know the minute details of God's will for our lives, we do know he wants for us to share the gospel with others. And so if we are here by God's gracious actions and getting salvation to us, and we know that he wants his gospel to continue to go forth, we must take a part in the mission, in that mission, because our love for our Lord compels us to want to please him. Though there was a bump in the road in the church's understanding of how people are saved, we can say with absolute confidence that salvation is possible through God's grace, which is given to us by God's gracious gift of faith. There are no other requirements, no other provisions. We are saved by grace through faith. This morning we saw how we as a church can be encouraged to take our part in God's mission through three evidences of God's providence in Gentile salvation. God saved the Gentiles. He used his word to affirm Gentile salvation, and he made sure that his will was obeyed. Salvation has come to us by God's providential action. Long before Jesus came into the world, became a man, the plans were already set. God providentially worked through and in human history so that those who he called to himself can be saved. And for that, we can forever be thankful. And may our lives reflect that thankfulness as we consider how we ought to live lives of loving submission and obedience to our master who bought us and delivered us from our sins. He transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we look at Acts 15, as we look at how you providentially confirm to the church that salvation was by grace through faith alone, we are encouraged. We are encouraged because you made sure that your word went forth and accomplished everything that you desired. You made sure that the church understood that salvation wasn't just about Israel, but it was also for the Gentiles. And Lord, even as we think about it now, you made sure that every single one of us who is here today, who has believed upon your name, 
and repented of our sins, we are now called by your name. You providentially saved us. Even though the actions in our lives, even though the circumstances in our lives may have prevented us from believing upon you, you providentially moved everything so that we could believe in you. You changed everything. You came into the world, you turned it upside down, and you made sure that every single one of us who are yours are saved. We pray for those who are here this morning who have not believed upon Christ, and we pray that, Lord, you would convince them, that you would show them, help them see beyond a shadow of a doubt how much you love them. May you help them see that they are in desperate need of your grace, desperate need of your salvation. May you bring them to yourself in your timing. Thank you, Father, for your word and for how it shows us, tells us of how great you are, of how good you are. And may we ever grow in our love and our appreciation of who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention this morning. Have a blessed week. You are dismissed.